This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. Earlier this week, we spoke to retired U.S. Marshal Bill Sarukas about his work on the investigation into the Beltway Snipers. If you haven't listened to that episode already, go back and listen to the amazing story as told by Bill himself. Bill began his law enforcement career as an undercover officer in Indiana. He would go on to become a deputy U.S. Marshal in the Southern District of California. He later rose up the ranks as a chief inspector within the Investigative Operations Division. Bill also served as a senior fellow at the International Association of Chiefs of Police, where he worked on various projects and initiatives, including the establishment of the Center for the Prevention of Violence Against the Police. Throughout his career, he was awarded various honors, including the Top Cop Award from the National Association of Police Organizations for his efforts on the Beltway Snipers case, as well as the Attorney General's Award for Distinguished Service for investigative excellence for his work on the investigation of Ed and Elaine Brown. Bill now works as a project alert consultant at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Today, he joins us again with a deep dive into the history of the U.S. Marshals Fugitive Apprehension Program and how the organization goes about handling such cases. Bill Srukas, U.S. Marshals, such a storied history, and your work has really an incredible array of stories and experiences. And today we are focusing on the U.S. Marshals themselves and a lot about them the public doesn't know. What can you share with us about the history and the development of the Marshals Fugitive Apprehension Program? Well, the agency is the oldest federal law enforcement agency in the United States. It was established as part of the Judiciary Act of 1789 by President Washington. The uh, purpose of the establishment of the U.S. Marshals was to ensure the integrity of the federal court system that had been created. And as part of that process, President Washington appointed the first 13 U.S. Marshals. And this is a practice that continues to this day where the president of the United States, based on recommendations from the Congress or the Senate, appoint 94 marshals and a director to the agency. As part of those powers that were provided to the agency in 1789, the agency has the broadest law enforcement authority in the United States including the ability to enforce the powers of a sheriff of a state. Additionally, the agency has the power to bring in people to support the missions of the agency. In the Old West, this was viewed as uh, the posse. That practice also continues today where the agency can swear people in to further the missions of the agency, and that can be done um, in a very informal way, but it's most commonly done 
for other federal agencies, state and local officers that are part of the U.S. Marshals Task Force environment. Bill, can so I ask a question about that? Because sure. so much, especially glorified in Wild West movies, you know, we all saw Young Guns and and Sheriff Kinney and all those guys. The question is, how long does the the swearing in that that ability is there an end on that in those emergent it's gen- situations? It's, it's generally for the length of the mission. Uh, I'll give you a couple of examples. A local police officer in St. Louis, Missouri, who was attached to the Fugitive Task Force, would be sworn in for one year as a special deputy U.S. Marshal, and they would renew that after that first year. There are other circumstances. Um, Every four years, there are about five or 6,000 state troopers from across the United States that come into Washington, D.C., and are sworn in as special deputy U.S. Marshals to support the inauguration. Uh, that authority only lasts for those two or three days that they are there serving that particular mission. So from that point on, 234 years ago, the U.S. Marshals was the agency for a long time, the only federal agency that was servicing the, the federal court system. And part of that was the service of arrest warrants that were issued by the courts across the country. So for many, many years, this was a, a priority of the, the Marshal Service. Until the early 1900s, the FBI was formulated, and as they began to take on new responsibilities and their jurisdiction expanded, that fugitive apprehension authority somewhat subsided for the Marshal Service. But in 1979, the Attorney General at the time, Benjamin Civiletti, he saw that the FBI was, uh, in his opinion, not fully... Uh, investigating organized crime as as they should be in that day. So in order to give them more freedom to investigate the mafia and organized crime, he realigned fugitive apprehension responsibilities and gave a lot more to the U.S. Marshal Service. So on October 1st of 1979, the FBI transferred tens of thousands of cases to the local U.S. Marshal offices across the country probably the most notable of which was the escape from Alcatraz in June of 1962, where Frank Morris, John Anglin, and Clarence Anglin uh, left the island. Whether or not they actually made it, no one ever knows. But it is a case that continues to be investigated to this day. And you mentioned, perhaps, however, the case might be closed this year. There have been discussions over the years of uh, because of the age of the individuals um, and because there really hasn't been any significant, substantial or verified sightings of them that uh, there have been discussions over many years of closing the case. And it seems that happens every June and those talks are happening again uh, today. More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. So when the FBI transferred those cases, What was the reception like? What was the public view of that like at the time? What did the FBI think about that? Tell us about sort of the the climate surrounding those circumstances. 
Well, I don't think that the FBI wanted to cede any of their authority or their responsibilities because with those responsibilities and authorities comes manpower and money. Um, although the FBI continued to, to be satisfied with the number of agents they had and their funding, the Marshal Service, although they took this new responsibility on or this broadened responsibility, there was no added funding or personnel that came with it. At that particular time, there were less than 1,500 deputy U.S. Marshals across the country that were doing all of the uh, responsibilities that the agency had in place at that time. And some of those included uh, the, the newly created witness security program, uh, which is now 50 years old. And the, the agency has protected more, more than 19,000 individuals in that program. Uh, the agency seizes and manages assets for the Department of Justice. Uh, as of uh, October 1st of last year, the agency was managing about $3.6 billion in seized assets or proceeds from illegal enterprises, such as a drug trafficking network. Uh, they also transport prisoners around the country, the federal prisoners primarily. Last year, they did 250,000 prisoner transfers across the United States. And then there's the fugitive program, where last year they arrested 75,000 fugitives with our task force partners across the United States. They currently have eight regional task forces that cover a geographic region of the country, and then they have 56 localized task forces. Uh, as an example, uh, the task force based in New York City oversees four judicial districts in New York and the District of New Jersey, whereas the District of Nebraska has its own task force locally there. Right after the jurisdictional boundaries were expanded for the Marshal Service. Uh, they, at the time, they had no enforcement branch at headquarters. Uh, they were scrambling to establish that hierarchy, uh, establish policies, get people in place across the country, train people. Um, although they, they had been working fugitives, this was going to be something new to them and, and a little bit more pressure on the agency. Four months, uh, less than four months after that new expanded authority, an inmate escaped from the Lompoc Federal Correctional Institution in California. But he just wasn't any typical escapee. Uh, his name was Christopher Boyce, and he was serving a 40-year term for espionage. He, uh, at a young age, he had gotten a job through his father, who was a retired FBI agent and had taken a security job in California. His father got him a job at uh, another defense organization in uh, Southern California. And over a period of time, he began to steal uh, satellite secrets from the company TRW and through a childhood friend transmitted those documents and information to the Soviet Union. Mm. So he was he was arrested, convicted and sentenced to prison and then escaped in January of 1980 or 1980. So this was the first real test for the agency to take on a, a monumental case, such as um, a, a person that had been convicted of espionage. It took about uh, 18 months until August of 2000 or 1981 when Boyce was arrested in Port Angeles, Washington at a hamburger drive-in stand. Um, and he remained in prison until the uh, early 2000s when he was ultimately released. 
Wow. And so would you say that that was sort of the first case where the U.S. Marshals proved themselves and proved the ability to apprehend fugitives um, with the same caliber and the same expertise as the FBI had up until that point? So sort of a proving yeah, ground? It, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was no doubt a test case for them. Um, as they were becoming organized in, in a new environment for fugitive investigations, but the agency was uh, looking much broader to that. And one of the things they did early on was create a program called FIST, which was an acronym for Fugitive Investigative Strike Teams. They would combine efforts with uh, local and state and other federal jurisdictions to increase their number of investigators in the early days for a week or two at a time, maybe three weeks in one geographic area, these operations would uh, go from the early 1980s to 1986. There would be nine such operations of FIST. On one occasion, they ran one in Miami where people thought that they were winning uh, trips and prizes uh, through an airline, Puno Airlines in Miami, which is the Spanish word for FIST. Hmm. Uh, in, in all of those operations, they uh, they expanded what they were doing. They expanded the time of the operation, um, and it led into a situation where the attorney general expected the agency to do these operations on a regular basis. So they went through uh, a series of operations beginning in, in the early 80s with FIST and going to two operations in the in the late 1980s where they were focusing on fugitives that were wanted by the Drug Enforcement Administration. And those fugitives were part of an operation called WANT, or Warrant Apprehension Narcotic Teams. Again, we, the purpose of that was only federal warrants. Following that, uh, there were operations such as Gunsmoke, Trident, Sunrise, Southern Star, uh, Operation Olympus, which was held prior to the 1986 Olympics in the Atlanta area to try to round up as many fugitives as they could before the, the world descended on Atlanta for the Olympics. Uh, and it led into another operation in the beginning in the early 2000s called FALCON, which was another acronym for Federal and Local Cops Organized Nationally. At the end of Falcon, there were six total operations and resulting in 91, more than 91,000 arrests over those six operations. Today, kind of to round things out of how things come together and, and connecting with your listeners of other episodes that you've had, in 2011, uh, during my time as the chief for international investigations, we were working in concert with Interpol and the United States National Central Bureau on an operation called INFRA. And that stood for International Fugitives Roundup and Arrest. And this particular edition, uh, we were working with 32 member countries of Interpol in South America. So we, we had deputy US marshals in South America um, headquartered in Buenos Aires. And during that operation, uh, a particular case came to our attention uh, by the name of Paul Eichide. And Paul Eichide had fled Arizona after having posted bond, cut off a 
monitoring bracelet and fled in the early 2000s. He had been arrested in 2003 as part of a large uh, indictment, primarily coordinated by the ATF, entitled Operation Black Biscuit. During that time, he was indicted for um, a, a number of charges, but uh, in particular was the murder and kidnapping of a woman named uh, Cynthia Garcia. That happened in 2001, but he wasn't indicted till 2003. He posted bond. Uh, I, I assume that the court viewed him as a danger to the community, but not a flight risk. And part of the reason for that was he worked for Charles Schwab as a stockbroker um, during the day and was a member of the Hells Angels at night. So after he flees, several years later, the U.S. Marshals put him on their 15 most wanted list. And we begin to investigate that. So in 2011, as we're running our operation in South America, Paul Eichheit comes to our attention again, and information is developed that he may be in Buenos Aires. So through some sources down there and, and other means, uh, we were able to obtain some photographs of this possible individual being Paul Eichheit. So they forwarded everything up to me at headquarters, and I reached out and spoke with an ATF agent named Jay Dobbins, who was the undercover in that particular operation. And I sent Jay the photographs that we had of the individual, and he immediately told me that it was definitely Paul Eichheit. He had tried to conceal some tattoos with other tattoos over the ones that everybody knew about, but it was definitely him. We worked through the Department of Justice and International Affairs, and several days later, Argentine authorities took him into custody. It took another six and a half or seven years for him to be extradited to the United States, but he has now been returned uh, to, to Arizona and, and continues to face those charges from uh, 2003. And our listeners will remember quite well, we had the honor of hosting Jay Dobbins here on the Fox True Crime podcast, and he shared that the genesis of his undercover operation Black Biscuit within the Hells Angels was, as you just said, because of the murder of Cynthia Garcia and because of the heightened horror and light that had been shed on that criminal organization. So um, it's it's really a, a great dovetail here between many of the angels here on earth and the um, the heroes in uniform and out of uniform that we have the pleasure and honor of interviewing here on the Fox True Crime Podcast. Going back to the fist operations, you know, I'll mm -hmm. never forget because some of those were recorded. And I'm sure a lot of listeners saw there was one in particular that involved a faux bunch of tickets that were being handed out allegedly, right, to, to a Redskins game, a then Redskins game. And it was a remarkable, it almost read like a 30 for 30, a remarkable production of showing the lengths that the U.S. Marshals went to to get all these guys in a room and then say, you've won, you know, you've won tickets and they all show up only to be arrested. So can you walk us through that really infamous operation and the events that happened afterward with how the public then viewed uh, the creativity and the prowess of the U.S. Marshals? Yeah, it was before my time in the agency, but I was familiar with it even before I became a deputy U.S. Marshal. And and what you're referring to is uh, a sting operation. And like I said, many of these have been conducted over the years and 
uh, you have to be creative in, in your next one because the criminals learn from them as much as we learn from them. But in this particular case, um, they were asked by the Department of Justice to come up with uh, some sort of an operation. And a number of people got together and, and came up with the idea of offering free tickets and a breakfast uh, prior to a Washington Redskins Cincinnati Bengals football game. So they sent out letters. They had addresses and information uh, as good as it was uh, for several thousand people that were wanted for different levels of offenses in the Washington, D.C. area. So they prepared uh, documentation to send out to people. Uh, they had a verification process that when the people called back or showed up on that particular day for the breakfast and for the game, that they would be able to verify who they were and bring them into this auditorium uh, for this celebration. Everybody in the operation, uh, it may have appeared to the, the winners of the tickets that uh, the Washington Redskins organization was, you know, greeting them with cheerleaders and, and uh, the Washington Redskins mascot and, and other people there, but they were actually, every single one of them were deputy U.S. Marshals. And then behind the scenes, there were members of the U.S. Marshals Special Operations Group that were waiting to jump into a room and place everybody in custody. As they showed up for the event, they were verified again who they were. The deputy U.S. Marshals that were greeting them would, would uh, embrace them and congratulate them, but in a lot of cases, they were uh, feeling to see whether or not they may have a weapon with them. Mm. Um, they were all led into a room. And um, again, the the FIST acronym was used because the organization that was sponsoring this giveaway was Flagship International Sports Television. Um, and uh, there, there were also some things that they did within the letters that were sent out um, with some some names of the organi organization um, leadership that uh, uh, spelled out or had information in there that people were going to be arrested. The fallout from it was a little bit mixed. I think a lot of people were glad that some of these dangerous people were off the streets. But we tried to do other operations like this in the years afterward, after that, and the NFL and the Major League Baseball, they somewhat balked at it. They didn't want to be connected to something like this. So I don't think we ever did another one similar to that uh, with a sports organization. There have been many, many others over the years, uh, 50 or 60 of them, that have had different giveaway type items where people have responded to get their, their free item. Um, there were in the Redskin operation, there were even uh, the, the detainees that were arrested were even asking if they still got the tickets uh, as they were on the, the prisoner bus uh, heading to jail. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy 
happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Do you ever, do you, do you, are you ever not surprised at the lengths people were, will go to for free stuff, even at the risk of apprehension, knowing that they are wanted fugitives? Does it ever cease to surprise you, Bill? Yeah, and and you have to prey upon that uh, free item or that giveaway. I'm aware of another one that was done that was really well done in uh, the western Texas area where they really didn't even know what the item was. It, it was just they would get a phone call or a message or a letter saying that they had uh, a package that was worth a particular amount of money, maybe, you know, $480.13, and their curiosity got the best of them. You know, they would call a particular number and um, where they were calling from would be captured. It would be relayed to uh, a street team in that area and they would respond to that location and um, they they would deliver the package on some occasions to ensure that it was the correct individual. But um, that particular operation, I believe it arrested three or four hundred people. And keeping it quiet for two or three weeks while the operation was ongoing was really a challenge (laughs) because once you arrest the first few, um, you know, the word gets out within the jail environment and and other places that something is going on with these uh, with these giveaways. Right. And I was picturing I thought you meant at first that keeping it quiet about the enormity of the operation. And while I understand, as you said, you know, professional sports organizations are no longer utilized, but I just can't get out of my head the image of the mascot. And you know how many how many people were involved at pulling off what is essentially, you know, a huge scam, but that results in, again, that apprehension. And it's just remarkable. I mean, I'm one of those people too, though. I can't, if something's free, you know, like swag at a con, like I'm like, oh yes, I'll take two. For some reasons, it it is worth twice as much if it's free. I don't know. Um, so I would probably be, I'd probably do the same thing. Um, so what more can you tell us about then these operations and the status of the U.S. Marshals today? Well, they, they continue on uh, with their responsibilities. It's, um, as I mentioned, it's the, the, the Marshals and the director are appointed by the president. So it does have its uh, political connections. And very often because of that process and because that director works for the attorney general, responsibilities change. You know, today we probably see where they are more focused on the protection of the judiciary, the Supreme Court and the circuit court judges and the U.S. district judges and magistrates. There's probably a bit more emphasis and awareness to that today than there is on fugitive investigations, but you do have the full-time deputies out there that partner with the state and local officers every single day across the nation. As I said, there are regional task forces and local district task forces. There's eight regional task forces, and there are 56 local task forces, and they go out every day working with their partners uh, across the country to apprehend the most violent people. There are sexual offenders, uh, gang members, Last year of the 75,000 that were arrested, almost 6,000 were homicide suspects. Uh, another 5,500 were gang members. So it's, it's a very dangerous business. It's probably more dangerous today than it was years ago because of um, some of the changes in 
bond today. More, it seems more dangerous people are being released back out onto the streets. So when they fail to appear or they violate their probation or parole, and they know that they will be returning to a custodial environment, it creates a much more dangerous situation for those deputies and police officers uh, that are going after these guys because now they know that they're going back to jail and, and they certainly don't want to. So it kind of reminds me of uh, some of my time in San Diego where the three strikes law was uh, popular. When we knew we were going after someone who had committed another crime that was that would fall under the three strikes requirement, uh, we viewed that person as much more dangerous toward us should something happen. So it, it's I think it's more dangerous today, you know, maybe evidenced by how many assaults there are on law enforcement on an annual basis, you know, probably 55 to 60,000 annual assaults on law enforcement. And um, the ambush shootings have increased as well. So much more dangerous place today for the fugitive task forces than it has been in the past. Mm. Just heartbreaking to hear that. And um, you mentioned the non-compliant sex offenders. Have those numbers been increasing as well? Yeah, the, those numbers, uh, there's about three different levels of individual that the U.S. Marshals and their partners pursue with regard to sex offenders. Um, the The main one is the non-compliant sex offender, the the person that is supposed to report to a particular place and does not, and therefore violates that and can now be prosecuted federally under the Adam Walsh Child Protection and Safety Act. There's also the compliance checks. There are, you know, tens of thousands of compliance checks done um, across the country every year. There are special investigative operations uh, similar to FIST and, and Falcon that are done just to check compliance. Uh, they'll just pay a visit to all of the sex offenders on that list. And then if everything is fine, if they're where they're supposed to be, if they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, then yeah, there's there's usually no action taken. But probably the most dangerous sex offender out there is the individual that is not a registered sex offender, is not reporting anywhere, and that nobody knows about. Um, and things like the internet today have made for a breeding ground for these predators, where they can offend against children uh, without physically coming into contact with those children. So it's much more of a challenge. Uh, the agency continues to develop tools and um, investigative methods uh, for finding those people, but the, the unknown sex offender is the most dangerous of all of them. And, and the way the Adam Walsh Child Protection Safety Act came into passage in the early 2000s was in the aftermath of hurricanes Katrina and Rita down in the Mississippi and Louisiana areas. There were nearly um, a thousand displaced children as they were trying to get everybody onto buses and aircraft and get people out of the area. Nearly a thousand children were displaced from their, their families. It took uh, nearly a year working through with FEMA and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children 
to get all of those children reunited. And working with John Walsh and Congress, they were able to pass that legislation, providing that authority to the U.S. Marshal Service to not only uh, assist FEMA and law enforcement agencies during times of disasters such as that, but to provide a vehicle for enforcing noncompliance against sex offenders who may leave the state of South Dakota and relocate to Georgia. Well, if they haven't done anything in Georgia, the Georgia authorities really aren't going to care a whole lot about conducting an investigation. And South Carolina certainly doesn't want them back in their jurisdiction. So those types of individuals, um, the ones that would continue to offend, uh, would go unnoticed. And the new law brought that um, somewhat under control, where it allowed for a federal interdiction into that to prosecute those individuals, even though they were uh, sentenced within a state or local jurisdiction, they could not be prosecuted federally um, under that new law. Bill, this is all so fascinating, and I appreciate this so much learning the history and exactly the import, exactly how prolific the U.S. Marshal Service is, which is tiny but mighty. And we are so grateful for your service, sir, for the impact that you've had on our country's freedom, especially with cases like the Beltway Sniper case, um, and especially for your time with us today. So thank you so much, Bill. And I encourage everyone to read his book, Chasing Evil, which is an incredible opportunity to dive even deeper into the U.S. Marshal Service and in particular one agent that we're talking with right now that we are so grateful for and um, hold so much respect for. So thank you again, Bill, so much. And thank you for inviting me. To hear more stories like this, you can listen to our past episodes on the Fox True Crime Podcast. Go to foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts to listen and subscribe. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.